Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, David Hook continues this series of messages on the miracles of Jesus, today looking at Jesus' encounters with evil spirits. And now, here's David. Thank you, Steve and Vicki. And uh, we are again in our sermon series on miracles. Now we're coming to the topic uh, that's a little bit darker, evil spirits. And uh, we're seeing Jesus in his miraculously work, work dealing with those. Uh, Peggy reminds me that spring is almost here in about two or three minutes or something. It officially becomes spring. So this is a real <laughs> happy occasion. <laughs> All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that, uh, that you are here with us. And we thank you that you are uh, the one who knows all, sees us, and knows all of us, and knows all of our struggles. And we thank you that you've come uh, to this place, and that you have freed captives, and that you've delivered us, and that you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your Son. And so we thank you for that, and we pray that you would bless our time this morning as we uh, open your uh, book and uh, look at the stories that are in it and the lessons we can learn from that. Amen. So uh, many of us are old enough to remember the summer of 1976. And uh, for those of you who aren't, let me just uh, refresh or go over a few of the details. So a plane was en route from Tel Aviv to Paris and it was hijacked and it was diverted to eventually Entebbe Airport in Uganda. And eventually there were about 106 hostages being held at that airport under the constant threat of death. And things uh, looked pretty grim as for how this was going to resolve. But a daring rescue plan was made and was codenamed Operation Thunderbolt. It was later called the most audacious hostage rescue mission in history. A special ops team flew all the way from Israel to Entebbe Airport in Uganda, and after 90 minutes at the airport, they had freed most of the hostages and were on their way back to Israel, as most of these hostages were Israeli citizens. And that uh, uh, memory of that rescue came to mind as I was considering uh, what Jesus has accomplished when he left heaven and came to earth. He came with a goal of establishing the kingdom of God on earth. It was it, too, was an audacious plan. But I think that resolute might be a better adjective to use. To be resolute is to be determined, dedicated, committed, purposeful and steadfast. And Jesus certainly displayed all of these qualities during his time here in enemy occupied territory. This morning, we're looking at some of the episodes where Jesus comes into contact with his spiritual adversaries. We have the reports of these contacts as miraculous as the miraculous deliverance of people from the afflictions of demon possession. Their stories highlight Jesus's ability to rescue people from the grips of enemy oppression and control. My plan is to review three of these stories of Jesus' encounters with demons in order to gain some insight regarding the enemy and to gain a greater appreciation for what Jesus has accomplished. 
Well, the first story takes place <clears throat> in our now from, <clears throat> excuse me, familiar town. Thank you, Joe. <clears throat> the familiar town of Capernaum. We've been there before on some of these stories. And it's early in Jesus' public ministry. And this, the details are found in Mark's first chapter, chapter 1, verse 21 to 28, and also in Luke 4, 31 to 37. The picture there is the is a synagogue in Capernaum that's there. These these ruins are there to this day. And it, this synagogue was probably built on top of the one where Jesus was uh, ministering on this occasion. It was the Sabbath day again, and Jesus was in the synagogue teaching the people. And the people were very impressed by his teaching. Everyone was awed by how he handled his, his topics. They were impressed by his authority and his understanding. And they were just having a, a marvelous time listening to Jesus. But in the midst of that congregation, there was one who was said to be possessed by an evil spirit. And suddenly he interrupts Jesus by yelling loudly, what do you want with us? Have you come to destroy us? I know you. You're Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. And you can imagine how disruptive that would be. And if something like that happened this morning, it would be just like, what's going on? But Jesus turns to the, to the man and the demon in him and says, be quiet and come out. Then after loud scream and convulsion, the demon left and the crowd's jaws were on their on the floor. They just dropped. Right. Like what happened there? What's going on? And what authority is displayed here that even demons listen to this man? And they all start talking at once and the news spreads quickly around the region about what Jesus had accomplished. So what can we learn from this encounter? Well, for one thing, the gospel writers are absolutely unanimous on the reality of demonic forces and their ability to control people. Just as a side note, they don't give us a lot of detail about who these demonic forces are. Um, best work seems to think that they are angels that were once good but have fallen away and are now evil. But that's uh, hard to find in Scripture, but people have pieced that together as a possibility. But many people today would reject the idea of evil spirits or demons. They would contend that these stories are the result of ancient ignorance uh, about the medical explanation for these symptoms, you know, like pathogens and neurological disorders. Not demons would be the, the real explanations for these symptoms that are being noted. However, the argument quickly falls apart when you look at just a few cursory um, um, events here and, and ideas and the details given in these accounts, quickly uh, dispel that theory. For one thing, this evil spirit knew Jesus by name and his divine status. Now, this wasn't general knowledge at this time, early in Jesus' ministry. In fact, even those who recently joined his ministry really had trouble grasping this idea that he was divine. So how did this man know that, unless he had some other way of knowing it. So this knowledge demonstrated this man uh, was not under a psychotic condition or a delusion. There was an actual entity present that knew information that would have been outside of this man's knowledge. 
And this wasn't an isolated incident. We don't have time to consider all the stories, but the gospel writers record quite a few times when Jesus casts out demons and that these demons are calling him the son of God. They knew who he was. These are not psychotic ravings, but rather communication from actual beings that speak with the voice of those they control. The New Testament presents a strong case for the existence of these evil spirits. So what are we to make of this information? Does it fit with our experience? Personally speaking, these type of encounters are outside of my experience. And I think that may be the case for many of us. There are people who testify to the reality of demonic possession today, but I would guess that most of us has, have not had that personal encounter like those recorded in the New Testament. We've not been in a congregation where this has happened. So it happens quite frequently, it seems, in Jesus' time. Was demon possession more prevalent at that time? Has there been a change in demonic activity or do we just not recognize it without Jesus being here with us? Well, I'm not qualified to give the answer to that, but I'd like to make a a few observations that might start us thinking about some of these things. The first observation The first is the observation that demon possession was not a prominent feature of the Old Testament writings. Can you think of an example of demon possession recorded in the Old Testament? Did any Old Testament prophets cast out demons? I couldn't think of any, and you can let me know if you find some. There is an intriguing story about King Saul. He was said to be afflicted by a tormenting spirit. And this spirit would come upon him and he would get agitated and angry. And at one point he was even angry enough to try and kill David with a spear. And he threw a spear, but fortunately he missed. But that seems to be a a spirit that just agitated him, maybe didn't possess him in the same way that we see in Mark's gospel in that first incident. But... Instead, we find the Old Testament speaking about demons in relation to idolatry and idols and their worship of uh, of idols. Look at uh, Psalm uh, 106, 34 to 38. The psalmist writes, Israel failed to destroy the nations in the land as the Lord had commanded them. Instead, they mingled among the pagans and adopted their evil customs. They worshipped idols, which led to their downfall. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters. By sacrificing them to the idols of Canaan, they polluted the land with murder. So that just picked out of the middle of that psalm, but we see here that there is, uh, in the Old Testament, the idea the biggest failure of the, and the chief sin of Israel was the worship of idols or lesser gods, which this psalm indicates to be the worship of demons. The idea of false gods or idols being the front for demonic activity is also referenced by Paul in the New Testament. He writes to the Corinthian church to remind them that care needs to be taken when deciding whether or not to eat food that has been offered to idols. He states that the idols represent demons. Here's the verse in 1 Corinthians 10. What am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I'm saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. 
and I don't want you to participate with demons. My second observation is that the manifestations of demons may vary. How, demons op- how are demons operating in the world today? Do they possess people? Maybe. But is it possible that demonic activity has shifted to other modes? Or maybe it was already, always was like that, but is more evident in other expressions. On this point, I'm, I'm purely speculating. But I wonder if our current experience with vast amounts of misinformation, disinformation, deception, and propaganda may be somewhat related to the powers of the unseen world. The leader of these dark forces is said to be a deceiver and slanderer. He's said to be the father of lies. Could our current state of not knowing who to believe be in part blamed on the forces of darkness? I, I, I make this suggestion as a, as a possibility based on, uh, partly on the story uh, that the prophet Micaiah told in 1 Kings 22, 19-23. Micaiah tells a story as as an explanation for the behavior of Ahab's prophets. Micaiah was the one true prophet of God, and Ahab had about 400 other prophets that always gave him better advice. Micaiah always gave him bad advice, he thought. But this story is so similar to C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters that I have to wonder if Lewis didn't get some of his inspiration from this passage. So here's the, uh, the verses that I'm referring to. Then Micaiah continued, listen to what the Lord says. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the armies of heaven around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who can entice Ahab to go into battle against Ramoth Gilead so he can be killed? There were many suggestions. And finally, a spirit approached the Lord and said, I can do it. How will you do this? The Lord asked. And the spirit replied, I will go out and inspire all of Ahab's prophets to speak lies. You will succeed, said the Lord. Go ahead and do it. So you see, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all your prophets, for the Lord has pronounced your doom. It's interesting that this story, uh, the spirit that inspires lying, is contributing to God's goals and purposes, even when the spirit acts in contrary to God's character. So God is able to accomplish his goals even in that time. Could lying spirits be at work in our world today? Is is, Is this a current manifestation of demonic activity? Well, I'll just leave you to ponder that question. The second story that I want to relate is uh, is very short on details, um, but the discussion that comes after it is important for us for our understanding of this cosmic conflict that's involved. And and Jim I think touched on this mess on this story when he was talking about the the death uh, the mute people that were healed, because this story which is found in Matthew twelve twenty two to twenty three and in Luke eleven, uh, a man is brought to Jesus who is in a very difficult position. He's both blind and deaf because of a demonic activity and presence in his life. Can you imagine trying to live an existence like that in, in that world? And he must have had some people that were compassionate enough to care for him and help him. But Jesus heals him. Luke says he cast out the demon. 
And he begins, and he's able to see and speak. And the crowd again is amazed, and they're asking if Jesus could be the son of David, the prophesied, the, the prophesied Messiah. Well, the Pharisees pick up their ears at that, and they said, oh, we have, a, we have our explanation for what's going on here. And our alternate explanation is that Jesus is actually using Satan's own authority to cast out demons. They slander Jesus and attribute his works to Satan, the prince of demons. In reality, it is the Pharisees who are really representing Satan's position. And just to remind us that Jesus tells them in no uncertain language where they stand. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus said, For you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do evil things, the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Well, who is this being, this prince of demons, this one called Satan? Well, that would be more than a sermon could cover. Um, so a lot, a lot more could be said and uh, is said about him. But uh, just a few things that we learn uh, from Scripture. We believe that he was to be he was a created angelic being who rebelled against God. Now, I'd like to look at just one aspect of this being. In the previous story, the demon asked Jesus if he had come to destroy them, the, the demons. It is interesting that the demons assumed that Jesus was on a mission of conquest and, and would destroy them. The Greek word for destroy is apolymi. Apoly, apolymi? Yeah, well, say A-P-O-L-L-Y-M-I. So just remember that, that word just for a few moments here. I'll come back to it. So, we're going to just look at uh, uh, John's vision in Revelation and in, in and a poem, part of the poem of Isaiah. And um, in the, John's vision in Revelation in chapter 9, we read of a star that has fallen to earth. And I believe that star to be an allusion to the chapter 14 of Isaiah's poem. And th- this is uh, Isaiah's verses here. Speaking of this star that was thrown to earth, Isaiah says, How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to earth, you who destroyed nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. Just compare this to what John... Just compare this to what John... Just a few verses picked out, and there's lots more to read in these verses, but in chapter 9 of that book, we, we read, I saw a star that had fallen to the earth from the sky, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, or otherwise called the abyss. When he opened it, smoke poured out through as though from a huge furnace, and the sunlight and the air turned dark from the smoke. Then locusts came from the smoke and descended on the earth, and they were given the power to sting like scorpions. The verses go on to describe those particular locusts and scorpions, and it's quite a dramatic picture. But the last uh, verse I'm going to read here in verse 11 of that chapter, their king is the angel from the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, or we just read that word, 
the destroyer. So I believe that Isaiah and, and Revelation are referring to the same star. That, and we know that star by the name of Satan. In John's vision, the star opens the bottomless pit and releases hordes of demonic beings that torment the earth. Their king is the angel from the pit, and his name is, is Apollyon, that being the destroyer. In reality, it is Satan who destroys, not Jesus. The demons and the Pharisees slander Jesus by accusing him of being the one referred to in John's gospel as the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. Instead, Jesus has come to rescue those that Satan holds bondage in bondage and in who holds hostage. Jesus emphatically denies that he is casting out demons by the power of Satan. He does say, however, if, however, he is casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived. So Jesus was using miracles, and especially the miraculous deliverance of people from demons, to announce the kingdom of God was here. That there is an ongoing cosmic conflict is well documented in the Bible. From the third chapter to the third last chapter, we find evidence for this conflict. Satan, the enemy, has control on earth, but Jesus has begun an invasion of enemy-held territory, and he is announcing a regime change. The long-awaited rescue is beginning, but this is an invasion like no other. It is not marked by armed conquest and destruction, but by words of love and compassion and self-sacrifice. I think the next miracle might help us illustrate some of these thoughts. And uh, this miracle is found later in Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Luke and Matthew also record the events of this story. I think this is really an extended story starting back in Mark chapter 4, 35. And others are going to cover maybe the miracles over nature. And that would be included in that talk. But just just to go back to Mark 4, 35 for a moment, Jesus announces to the, to the disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake. Let's have an evening cruise. Uh, it'll be fun, you know, a, a getaway, you know, <laughs> you know, oh, sure, let's all go. You know, let's all have a you know, boat ride for tonight. You know, And so they, they set off going across the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum down to the region of the Gerasenes, which is about 20 kilometers on the lake. So, you know, an, an evening sail should be good. We'll get there in the morning. We'll have a good time. We'll be away from all these crowds of people around Capernaum that, would, that have been bothering us, and we can relax a bit. You know, that's why we're... That must be what Jesus is thinking. That's why would he else would he go over to the Gentile sort of territory. Well, they had set out in the night and, you know, the story there, suddenly a fierce storm rises and the boat's in danger of being sunk by being swamped and Jesus is sleeping and uh, the disciples wake him up and they, they said, don't you care, we're going to drown. And what is he, he? Jesus gets up and says, silent, be still. Doesn't that sound a lot like he's speaking to the demon in Mark chapter one? You know, be quiet, come out of him. And suddenly there was just peace and calm, just like. The, the man experience it makes me wonder whether that storm was just more than a storm. Maybe it was some sort of demonic uh, event as well. Anyway, Jesus was shown to be authoritative over those uh, conditions as well. So they arrive on the other side um, early in the morning, I think. Um, 
in the region of the Gerasenes. Now, this is the picture we took when we were visiting Galilee. And we're sort of on the northeast corner of the lake here, looking south. And uh, so towards the end of those hills at the far end of that picture, you might find the area where Jesus was was headed or where they, they came to that morning. And you can see the hills kind of get steep there in that part of the, the lake. And that's a part of the story as well. So they arrive at the other side. And as soon as they beach the boat, they are faced with a nightmare situation. A man comes running towards them. He's the, the, the scariest person you would have ever wanted to meet. Uh, he's said to have been possessed by demons. He lived among the tombs in the, in the graveyard, in the burial sites. He, he was strong, violent, and beyond the ability for, of anybody to control him. He howled and he self-mutilated. And he was naked, Luke says. And I, if I was the disciples, I would say, okay, enough of this adventure and good time. Let's get back in the boat and go the other way. You know, let's uh, leave. But uh, the man had an in, uh, interesting behavior. He ran up to Jesus and bowed down in front of him. And then he screams at Jesus. And, and it seems that Jesus has already been talking to him. He's had told the demon to come out of him. But as a result of that, the man screams, what do you want with me? It's nearly the same question the first man asked. And Jesus, uh, you are the son of the most high God. And don't torture me. Don't please don't torture me. You know, almost by the name of God, don't torture me. Don't be violent. Don't be destructive. So Jesus says, what's your name? And the demon answers, legion, for we are many. And a legion has, in Roman soldiers' terms, it's about 6,000 soldiers in each legion. So that's a lot of demons if that's the number that they are there. They beg Jesus not to be sent to a different place. And Luke puts in the abyss in that word, distant place. They don't want to be sent back to where, you know, that bottomless pit place is that we read in Revelation. Instead, they begged to be sent into the pigs that were nearby. There was a herd of about 2,000 pigs rooting and grazing on the, on the hillside there. And I can't imagine how they got 2,000 pigs together. I, I just, I, we raised pigs, as a, you know, when we were farming. And, and sometimes we had a few hundred in a, in a barn. And that was a lot of pigs. 2,000. <laughs> how many herdsmen were there looking after 2,000 pigs? I don't know. It just boggles my mind. But, but Jesus said, okay, you got permission. Go to the pigs. So they left the man and they went to the pigs, but the pigs immediately committed mass suicide, running down the hill into the lake and drowning. I'm not sure what the demons did after that. We're not told that. But, but it's obviously not a psychotic event, is it? I mean, <laughs> how can one person's psychosis cause 2,000 pigs to run away? That uh, is pretty hard to explain without, the, uh, without the, um, going to the idea of there being actual evil spirits here. So the herdsmen, what a disaster. Here's their livelihood. Here's their income. Everything gone. And wow, this is frightening. They all run away and they start telling people and other people run towards the event. They come to see what's happening. I guess like you come to see a fire or a building burning or something like that or a tornado destruction, whatever. We've kind of drawn to those things and people came. And... Uh, 
the story was told and retold, but they found this man who was probably well known to the community around there as the wild, you know, crazy man that's uh, in the in the tombs. He was completely changed. He was sane and quiet and and completely clothed, calm. And the story got told and retold. And then uh, there was a large crowd gathered. But instead of being grateful for that event in, in this man's life, they asked Jesus to leave. I don't know if they were so afraid of him because he was so he had obviously unleashed destruction on their their swine herd, or whether they were actually thinking like the Pharisees: if this guy can do this, he must be the prince of demons. He's got to be the worst of the bunch. Let's get him out of here. Don't know. So they. Disciples and Jesus get back into the boat and just as they're getting ready to go, the man who was delivered from the demons begs to go with them. And Jesus says, no, you, you stay here and tell everybody, your family and, and everybody else what I've done for you. So the man went and began telling everybody in these 10 uh, Gentile Roman cities that were in this area, the 10 towns, the Decapolis, about his experience and his encounter with Jesus. I think this story is an illustration of the mission and purpose of Jesus. He came to rescue those who were held captive by the enemy and defeat the enemy. In this story, Jesus leaves his country, his town of Capernaum, and ventures into enemy territory, the Gentile territory on the other side of the lake, in the midst of stiff opposition and danger. And why did he go? I kind of think it was for this man. I think he went just for that guy. He didn't do anything else there. He just came, delivered the, de- delivered the man from demon possession and left. And you see, his, his sole purpose seems to be for the rescue of this individual who is hopelessly enslaved. He does all that for just one person. Well, we see here the confirmation that each person is valued in God's economy. This story is a picture of what Jesus has done for each person in the world. He left his place in heaven and traveled to this world. He came to enemy territory and encountered stiff opposition. He came for me. He came for you. He came to announce a new kingdom that all can enter and escape enemy control if they choose. Colossians, uh, as we read earlier, says it this way. May you be filled with joy, always thanking The Father, he has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sin. Jesus made contact with the enemy forces and proved that he had the authority over them, but he did not wage a typical battle. There was no destruction of the enemy, no killing of those who were opposed to him. Jesus did not even incarcerate his enemies. Instead, he allowed them to continue their destructive actions in the world. The weapons that he used were the words that he spoke and the love that he demonstrated. Ultimately, Jesus was victorious over all the powers of darkness, but the method of his victory was completely unexpected and completely unorthodox and radical. He allowed his adversary, the liar, to kill him. Satanly, violently and brutally had Jesus killed. In doing this, Satan brought about his own downfall. The victory of Jesus was in his sacrifice. John writes and speaks of it this way. 
The time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. Well, there's one last lesson to mention from this story. And that is that Jesus gave this man a mission. This man begged to be allowed to come with Jesus, to leave the place where he had been tormented and shamed. And he just probably wanted to get out of there. But Jesus refuses his request. Doesn't that seem strange? After all, the demons begged Jesus not to send them away, and Jesus granted their request. The crowd begged Jesus to leave, and he did. Now, this man begs Jesus if he can come with him, but Jesus says no. (laughs) Why not? Well, instead, Jesus gave him a mission to tell his story to the world. I think that we can see a lesson for ourselves here. Much as we might like to leave this world and find safety and comfort in Jesus' presence, he asked us to go to the hostile world and tell our stories about what he has done for us, how he has rescued us, how he has delivered us from the powers of darkness. We are to tell the world about our rescuer. Our mission, should we choose to accept it, is to build the kingdom of God on earth. Father, thank you that uh, you indeed are our rescuer, that you have come to deliver us, and we thank you for that. May we be uh, um, bold to tell people of this uh, rescue and how you have done wonderful things for us, and and may we spread that news far and wide. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.